0: We're continuing this morning our series in the book of Leviticus, and we are in Leviticus chapter 12. So if you have your Bible, turn to Leviticus chapter 12. Let me just kind of give you a um, a couple of thoughts as we get started while you're turning there. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Chapter divisions are not original to the Bible. They've been around for about 800 years, but they help us find our way around. I think it it would be interesting if you were to say, Of all the chapters in the Bible, which ones get preached on the most? What's the top 10? If you ask that question, you probably find chapters like Genesis 1, the creation, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, if you turn to the New Testament, you might find Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, or Luke 15, the prodigal son, John 3, Jesus and Nicodemus, Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. Romans 8, the golden chain of redemption. Maybe 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Or Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. These are great chapters of the Bible that we hear over and over again because they have such wonderful things for us to hear. But if you were to go to the bottom of that list, what are the bottom 10 chapters that are ever preached on? I have a feeling that Leviticus 12 might make that list along with a few other chapters from Leviticus that we're going to get to. So this is going to be an interesting chapter. We'll find, though, that this passage has something important to say about God and something important to say about women. When we follow the clues in the text and we place this chapter in the storyline of the Bible, I think we'll find that it actually tells us something beautiful. The Bible doesn't flinch when talking about uncomfortable things, and so we won't either this morning. You're there in Leviticus chapter 12. Before we jump in and read it, let me just kind of give you um, a quick, brief reminder of where we are. And I'm moving quickly this morning because we've got a lot of ground to cover. We're going to turn to a number of different chapters, and I'm going to ask you to follow along with me and turn in your Bible as we do that. But where we are in Leviticus is we are sitting at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God is giving instructions. He's given the instructions for how the tabernacle was to be built. And so now it has been built. And he's giving instructions for how it's supposed to operate. He gave specifically instructions about certain offerings and how they are to happen. Then he gave instructions about the priests and how they were supposed to carry out their duties. When we got to chapter 9, the tabernacle actually started functioning and offerings were brought. We saw that fire came out and consumed those offerings and the people responded in worship, in fear and trembling. They bowed down. But then as soon as we hit chapter 10, we ran into a problem. Nadab and Abihu bring in strange fire into the tabernacle. In other words, they brought something unclean in. And God responds, again with fire coming out from the tabernacle, but this time it consumes them. And that leaves us with a dilemma. We have the dilemma on the one hand of how it is that we can possibly come into the presence of God. And at the same time, we now have something unclean, dead bodies, in the tabernacle, the bodies of Nadab and Abihu, that need to be dealt with. So how is God going to deal with cleanness and uncleanness? And what does it even look like to be clean and be able to come into his presence? Those questions will be answered in Leviticus 16 when we get to the Day of Atonement. But in the section that we're in right now, chapters 11 through 15, God is detailing for us The restrictions on clean and unclean. When can you come into God's presence and when can you not? In chapter 11, we saw all those categorizations of animals, animals that are clean or unclean. In chapter 12, we encounter something entirely different. Let's take a look and read chapter 12, and then we'll talk about what we find there. Leviticus chapter 12. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as at the time of her menstruation, and she shall be unclean. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised, then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering, and he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. Now we're going to look at the uncleanness in a minute. But first, a few things that we're not going to spend time on today. And the reason we're not going to spend time on these things is because they're dealt with either in other chapters, or we've already looked at it, or, or that's not really the focus of this chapter. So for instance, the boy, the baby boy is circumcised on the eighth day. Circumcision is the mark of the covenant in Israel. It happens on the eighth day because eight is the number of new beginnings. But we're not going to take time on that because this isn't really teaching about circumcision. There's the longer period of time when it's a baby girl. What's the significance of that? I don't want to spend time on it other than to say, I think it's just looking forward to when the girl grows up and experiences the same biological functions as the woman that we're talking about in this passage. And so it gets doubled because it's not just the woman, but it's this future woman as well, the baby girl. After the time of uncleanness is done, sacrifices are made for atonement, We're not going to talk about the sacrifices because we've already done that in Leviticus 1 through 5. So this morning, we're going to focus on the fact of the woman's uncleanness and what it's signifying. So to get the the details straight, she's unclean for seven days from the onset of her monthly period. She's unclean for 40 days after childbirth. Okay, the normal seven plus an additional 33. So we have seven days and we have 40 days. Notice, though, that she's not unclean until the flow stops, but for a certain number of days. In other words, the uncleanness is not specifically about hygiene or about anything physical even. The uncleanness is about an association with something. The numbers are telling us something. And the question is, why? What is it that God is communicating? Well, the main idea here in Leviticus 12 is this. The womb is the world. The womb is the world. It's a picture of the world. Just like the tabernacle is a picture of the world. We've talked about that in the past. Here, the woman's womb is a picture of the world. She is clean when the womb reflects the world the way it should be. And when I say should be, I mean should in terms of wholeness of life, like we've talked about in the past. When the womb is in a a state that it can support life, she's clean. When the womb overflows or is uninhabitable and incapable of supporting life, that's when she's unclean. So when God contains or confines the overflow, then things are the way they should be. Like the animals had to be in alignment with the category. If you remember, for example, God defines fish as those animals, those fish that have scales and fins. So they're clean if they have scales and fins. But if you have an animal that doesn't have scales, like a catfish, it's unclean. Well, there's nothing wrong with a catfish. You can eat a catfish. They're perfectly healthy. There's nothing wrong with them. The difference is it doesn't perfectly line up with the category. The category here is wholeness of life. And so that's what's going on with the woman. You'll get the picture as we keep going. The clues are in the specific words of the text. And one in particular for now. Verse 7 The middle of verse 7 says, then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. The word flow there is a unique word. This is the only place in all of the Hebrew Bible that that word is translated as flow. Every other time you find this word in the Hebrew Bible, it's translated as fountain or spring or wellspring. It has the idea of uncontained flow, uncontained water. Now, the association, if you think about it this way, is specific to women, partly because of the fact that it's women who give birth, but even going back to Genesis, Eve is called the mother of all living. And so the the prototypical woman, the woman that defines all other women, Eve, is the mother of of all the living. She's defined in terms of life. So the cleanness and uncleanness here has to do with when the womb is in a condition to support and sustain life. Now, for us to really get the picture of this, we have to go back to some other stories and find out exactly what God is referring to. So go with me to Genesis chapter 1. Turn back there in your Bible. It's important for you to see what's in the text of scripture, because that's more important than anything that I'm going to say this morning. So this is the story of the creation. And as you're turning there, think about this question in your mind. What was the condition of the world when it was first created? Now, our natural answer to that is probably something along the lines of, well, everything was perfect. It was just the way it was supposed to be. But I want us to go back before that. Genesis chapter 1, look at verses 1 and 2 with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's kind of the summary statement of all that, all that he did. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The original condition of the earth was an overflow of the waters, not contained within any boundaries. And the result of that was that the earth was without form and void. Literally what those word me, words mean, it was empty and uninhabitable. Why was it uninhabitable? Because it's covered with water. God had to do something to change its condition before it would be capable of sustaining life. So what does God do? day two look at verses six and seven and god said let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters and god made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse so god separates the waters below the waters above he makes the atmosphere the atmosphere is necessary for all of us to be able to live to be able to breathe So here, God contains the waters in their place. He's preparing the world to be able to sustain life. Then, day three, God gathers the waters together, the waters below, and distinguishes them from the dry land. Look at verses 9 and 10. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. So here, God takes the waters that were separated on the earth, and he gathers them together into one place. He calls the waters seas, and we know that seas in the Bible become a a, a symbol for chaos or death, while the land is the place of life. So now the land... Has been prepared as a place where life can be sustained because the waters have been contained. And on this day, the earth sprouts vegetation, life begins. And that's followed by more appearances of life. Day five, the birds appear in the atmosphere. Day six, land animals and man and woman. And then God commissions man and woman to be fruitful and multiply keep producing more life in this world that God has now made habitable, able to sustain life. And God calls the end product very good. Then in chapter 2 and verse 2, it says, on the seventh day, God finished his work. So over the course of seven days, God separates and contains the overflow of the waters and prepares the place to be able to sustain life. Turn over with me now a couple more pages to Genesis chapter 7. We're going to look at 7 and 8 here briefly. This is the story of the flood. And you know why God sends the flood. He sends the flood because the sin of mankind on the earth is great. And he's going to wipe everybody out and he's going to start over. It's going to be a rebirth for humanity. Now, when God sent the flood, here's how it's described. Look at chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So the fountains of the deep had been contained since Genesis 1, but now God makes the fountains burst forth from their place of containment. The flood waters are then described as prevailing on the earth, as if they're in a battle with the dry land and the water is winning. The death and chaos is winning. Look at verses 17 through 20 of chapter 7. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. So the waters prevailed on the earth and the waters of chaos and death are now beyond their boundaries. What's the result? Continue reading verse 21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. So when the waters prevailed on the earth, when the waters overflowed their boundaries, life could not be sustained. But then God contained the waters, Genesis 8, starting in verse 1. God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. So God closed the fountains. God contained the waters. And there's a lot more statements like this. The waters had subsided. Noah sends out birds to make sure they're able to survive outside the ark. And the result of God containing the waters is that life can now flourish again. Look at chapter 8, verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on this 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. And God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your son's wives with you. Bring out every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Be fruitful and multiply is Genesis 1 language, repeated again here. So now that the waters have been contained, life can flourish and multiply. You don't have to turn back there, but think about it with me. Back in Leviticus 12, from the day the woman's monthly flow begins, she is unclean for seven days. That's modeled on creation and God's work of preparing the world for life. God contains the waters and puts them in their boundaries and the world is ready to sustain life. From the day the woman gives birth, she's unclean for 40 days. That's modeled on the flood and God's work of preparing the world in this rebirth for life. God contains the waters, puts them in their boundaries and the world is ready to sustain life. So the numbers 7 and 40 in Leviticus 12 are designed to call these stories to mind so that we understand what God is picturing. Remember, God's presence is a place of wholeness of life. Psalm 36 and verse 9, with you is the fountain of life. So for someone or something to come into the tabernacle, to come into God's presence, it must represent wholeness of life. During the seven days or the 40 days, the woman's womb is not capable of sustaining life. And the outward visible evidence of that is the flow of blood. So during this time, she's unclean. Now, hear me on this. This does not mean she did something wrong. It does not mean that God sees something objectionable about women. When the seven days or the 40 days are over, the womb is ready to sustain life. She's clean again. So what that means is the woman's womb represents the world. The back and forth of her being clean or unclean of her being able to come into God's presence or unable to come into God's presence, that's retelling the story of the world. It's a display of God's glory because it points to how God creates and sustains life. Only God can do that. The Israelites, as they go about all of these laws of cleanliness, and they have to be very conscious of these things all the time, they have all the, these demonstrations, these symbols in front of them all the time. God is speaking to them about who he is and, 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 and how he's designed the world. It's a reminder of the holiness of God and of the, the fact that God is the creator and the sustainer of life. Now that we have the meaning of Leviticus 12 in mind, What I want us to do is I want us to look at a story from Jesus' ministry that helps us to understand this further. So turn with me to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. Go there in your Bible so that you can follow along. And in this story, we are going to encounter two individuals. One is a girl and the other is a woman. And we begin with the story of the girl in Mark chapter 5 verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. So Jairus' daughter is dying, and he asks Jesus to intervene. And now the story's going to get interrupted by the story of this woman. And I'm just going to read this a verse or two at a time and kind of comment on it as we go to point some things out. So picking it up again in verse 24, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a, had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So this woman has had a flow of blood for 12 years. Now, when you go through the Levitical law beyond chapter 12, you'll see that when the flow of blood would continue beyond the seven days, there was an uncleanness of a different kind that kind of comes into play. So she's unclean because she has this abnormal flow of blood. And she's been this way for 12 years. That means she's an outsider. She's excluded from corporate worship. She can't come into God's presence. She's been on the outside for a long time. And the doctors have not been able to help her at all. Verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said... If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Now, normally, in terms of clean and unclean, like we saw last week, touching something unclean spreads the uncleanness to the one that's touching. But she's heard something different about Jesus, so we should be tuned into that as we read, even through, all through the Gospels and what happens with Jesus and cleanness and uncleanness. Verse 29. And immediately, the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Now, one thing that's extremely important to realize in this story, the word that is used here in verse 29 for the word flow is different from the word discharge in verse 25. Here, the word flow is the Greek version of the Hebrew word I mentioned before that means wellspring or fountain. In other words, Mark, as he writes the story, is intentionally drawing your mind back to Genesis 1, Genesis 7 and 8, and Leviticus 12, and all of the other stories from the Bible that carry on this theme. Not only that, When it says that she felt in her body, the word is literally, she knew. She knew. Verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, 'Uh, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. So, Touching, again, calls to mind the clean versus unclean thing. And Jesus perceived here that power had gone out from him. Mark, as he writes this story, is directly connecting the containment of the flow, the wellspring, with Jesus' power. This containment has been accomplished by the power of Jesus. Hold that thought in your mind. Verse 33, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Her fear and trembling there reminds me of Leviticus 9 when the tabernacle started functioning and the response that the people had when the fire of God came out and consumed the sacrifice. There was fear and trembling and they fell down in worship. Verse 34, and he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus says she was healed because she had faith. She believed something about Jesus, who he is, what he could do. And so Jesus tells her, Go in peace and be healed. And now we return to the story about the girl, verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. So we have faith again. Don't fear, don't be afraid, have faith. "'Little girl, I say to you, arise.' And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat." Now, I want to ask you the question, what holds these two stories together? The story of the girl and the story of the woman. Well, first of all, it's the structure. We've seen this before, right? The Oreo cookie thing. When there's two things on the outside and something in the middle, those things help us to understand each other. They're related somehow. That's a writing tool that Mark is using. But what is it specifically in the details of the story that they both have in common? What they have in common is the number 12. The woman has had this discharge of blood for 12 years. The girl is 12 years old it's not coincidence that Mark gives us those details. The number 12 is the number for the people of God, for Israel. There's 12 tribes in Israel. When Jesus reconstitutes a new Israel around himself, how many disciples does he choose? 12 disciples. When you get to the end and the vision of Revelation and the the, the new Jerusalem that represents the people of God, there's 12 gates and there's 12 this and 12 that. It's the number for the people of God. So the woman who's had the flow of blood for 12 years and the girl who died was 12 years old, Mark is making a point of telling us these details because he's telling us that Jesus is bringing life and healing to his people who were dead and unclean and incapable of sustaining life. They are spiritually dead. But Jesus is doing something about it now. Now, this gets better when you broaden it out and you get the bigger context. So I want you to see the stories that come before this one. Turn back to Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. I love it when the the Bible is like this puzzle that comes together in these pieces and you see what the writers are doing and what God is doing. Starting in verse 35, we have the story of Jesus calming the storm. So verse 35, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. So this, they're going to get in a boat, and they're going to go across the sea. So this story is going to take place on the waters. Think creation, think flood. Here we go. Verse 36, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. So notice that the waters on the sea are overflowing their bounds. The waters are breaking into the boat. You're not supposed to have water in the boat. The waters are going where they don't belong. Verse 38, what's the result? But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? We're going to die. These waters that are coming out of their boundaries and coming into the boat are going to bring death. That's what happens when waters overflow their bounds. Verse 39, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So Jesus speaks and puts the wind and the sea back in their places. His power contains them. Jesus restores peace to the boat and he tells them, don't be afraid Instead, have faith, not fear. And they asked the question well, who is this? Well, the answer is obvious. Read your Old Testament. Who is it that has the power to put the waters back where they belong? Creation, the flood, the Red Sea, the Jordan River, over and over again. It's only God who does that. Who is this Jesus who has power? Put the waters back where they belong. This is God. Then the next story, chapter 5, starting in verse 1, is the story about Jesus healing a man with a demon. am not going to read the whole story because we don't have time. But Jesus casts the demons out of this man and into the pigs. And then the pigs run off the cliff and into the sea. So look at verse 1. This happens where? They came to the other side of the sea, the country of the Gerasenes. So here we have something that is being told to us after Jesus calms the storm, but it's still being connected to the sea. This happens beside the sea, on the other side of the sea. The man that Jesus healed, if you look in verse 5, where did he live? He lived among the tombs. The man is associated with death not life. And Jesus takes the demons out of the man, because that's not where they belong. They're out of their place. And he sends them into the pigs. Pigs are associated with uncleanness in order to make the man clean. And Jesus then sends the pigs running where? Into the sea, to their death. And that brings us back then to the story about the little girl and the woman. And did you notice how that story started? In verse 21, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Mark tells all of these stories in the context of the sea. Because all of them, all of these stories, demonstrate Jesus' power to put things back in their proper place. So the significance of this story of this woman who has the flow of blood is that this is Israel's condition of death and uncleanness, and Jesus has come to deal with it. Jesus has come to restore the conditions for life. He puts sin and its effects in their place. Now, I want to talk about what this what the significance of this is. And so some applications, and if it sounds like I'm winding down and almost done, I'm not. So hang on, here we go. What does Leviticus 12 tell us about God? The laws of Leviticus 12 are designed, again, to communicate that wholeness of life is necessary to be in God's presence. And the woman's uncleanness is not saying there's something wrong with her or that she did something wrong. It is instead recognizing that God has designed the very body of a woman to tell the story of our world and to display the power and the glory of God as the one who creates and sustains life. He's a God of life. With you is the fountain of life. He's the one who sustains life. He's the only one who has the power to restore the conditions for life. What does Leviticus 12 tell us about women? Well, first of all, and I'm going to camp out on this for a minute, because this is where it really intersects heavily with our culture today. Women are different from men. These differences are designed by God. God makes and maintains the boundaries, and we are to maintain them. Our culture is thoroughly confused about that. Let me give you five kind of aspects of our culture's confusion about this. Number one gender as a social construct in our culture. Gender is separated from biological sex, biological sex, male or female is defined at the DNA level. It's marked by different body parts. There are boy parts and girl parts. Gender, according to our culture is your sense of self. It's a socially constructed reality. They say, not a biological one. It's what you feel that you are, regardless of what your body is. So our culture tells you that the binary is bad, this choice, male or female. They say that's not the way the world really is. You're not just either male or female. There's lots of other options and combinations for you. So Facebook gives you 71 different options of how you can identify. And the culture tells you that gender is a spectrum and you're somewhere on that spectrum most sex education programs in the U.S. schools take their information from the SIECUS, which is the Sexuality Information and Education Council of the United States. I only bring that up to say, here's their statement on gender. They say, gender identity refers to a person's internal sense of being male or female or a combination of these. And they go on to say, People's understanding of their gender identity may change over the course of their lifetimes. This is one way that our culture is confused about these issues. Second, a denial of truth and reality and science. If the culture's view is correct, then it follows that there is no reason for restricting access to restrooms or restricting participation in high school or college sports, etc., that's absurd on the face of it. Abigail Schreier, who has done some writing on this, points out that the fastest female sprinter in the world is the American runner Allison Felix. She has more gold medals than Usain Bolt. Her lifetime best for the 400 meter run is 49.26 seconds. Based on statistics from 2018, There were nearly 300 high school boys that could beat that time. It's not saying boys are better. It's saying men and women are different. President Biden has given an executive order, one among many, entitled the Executive Order on Preventing and Combating Discrimination on the Basis of Gender Identity or Sexual Orientation. He's basically telling all federal departments, all departments of the federal government, to make sure that they're in uh, compliance with these, these cultural ideas. And he explicitly bases it on the logic of the Bostock court case from the middle of 2020. Now Bostock was just about workplace discrimination, but what they're doing is they're taking the logic of that case and now spreading it out to every department of the federal government. Now that's going to include the Department of Education, among others. And so this lays the groundwork for the federal government to withhold funds from any high school or college that refuses to comply with the LGBTQ demands regarding restrooms and access to sports and locker rooms and all of that. Now let me give you another example of where our culture is at in this sense, this denial of truth and reality and science that really directly connects to Leviticus 12. If you're on Twitter, maybe you've seen in recent months the hashtag men can have periods too, or men can be pregnant too. And there are websites for these things. What's the logic of it? Well, the logic is that if a biological woman feels that she's a man, then she really is a man, regardless of the biological functions that she experiences. And you thought Leviticus was not relevant. All that God goes through in Leviticus 12 is telling you about the differences between men and women and how he specifically designed women in a way that glorifies his work in the world. Third, a postmodern view of body, mind, and soul. All of this stuff that we're talking about flows from a postmodern view of the body, the mind, and the soul. If there's no objective truth, then we're free to live without restraints, constructing our own reality. So a BBC video that's titled Boy or Girl tells us it doesn't matter what living meat skeleton you've been born in, it's what you feel that defines you. But here's the thing. Saying that your body doesn't match who you are is the same thing as saying that your body is not a part of who you are. It demeans the physical body. The biblical world values the physical body. It's created with meaning and purpose. It's going to die because of sin, but it'll be recreated even better, more glorious, a heavenly body that is still physical. Nancy Piercy writes about this, and just listen to what she says. Postmodernism treats the body as infinitely malleable or shapeable with no definite nature of its own. If the body cannot be defined, then it places no constraints on our gender identity. The goal is complete freedom to declare oneself a man or a woman or both or neither. She writes, the sovereign self will not tolerate having its options limited by anything it did not choose, not even its own body. But she goes on, by contrast, Christianity assigns the human body a much richer dignity and value. Humans do not need freedom from the body to discover their true authentic self. Rather, we can celebrate our embodied existence as a good gift from God. Instead of escaping from the body, the goal is to live in harmony with it. That brings us to the next point, our relation to our creator. In the 18th century, the philosopher Hegel argued that everything was in flux. Nothing was fixed. So the physical is in flux, the mental is in flux, the intellectual, the moral is in flux, always changing. Now, in some ways, Charles Darwin picks up on that. His ideas of evolution are an application of that thought. But the main thing that Hegel and Darwin have in common is that they deny that there's any purpose. There's no overarching goal or plan. It's random, not purposeful. It's not going anywhere in particular. But the biblical view is the opposite. We are created by God with a purpose. God's creation has parts and boundaries and distinctions. The animals were created according to their kind, and the zebras were not wandering around self-identifying as a cluster of grapes. God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them in his image. Distinct categories. And that's true right down to the level of body parts. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, he's talking about the church, but he's using the physical body as an analogy to do it. And he explains that the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. Then he says this, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Let me just walk you through that thought for a minute. Two things you need to notice about that. Even though it's talking about the church, it's still speaking truth about the physical body in order to illustrate it. First thing is this. A body part denying its identity doesn't change its identity. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the body part denies its identity, that doesn't change its identity. Its identity is what it is because it's made by God. What is said about it is irrelevant. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Why? Because God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. God is the one who gives the identity. Now listen to this, okay? In 2016, a man named James Shoup won a court case granting him the right to identify as non-binary, not a male, not a female, okay? First person to do that. I wanna read for you his statement on winning that court case. It'll take three slides to do it. So just follow along as we go. After a historic court ruling, I am free. Free from what or free for what? I am the first non-binary person in the United States to be officially recognized. I refused to be classified. By the way, where did our classifications come from? Where did the division of male and female come from? And now I've been vindicated. My court victory has broken a gender binary that many said could not be dismantled. Dismantled, that's postmodernism. that's critical theory, leaking right out into the culture. In doing so, I have won the right to exist in any manner that I choose throughout the gender spectrum. The traditional constraints, male and female, imposed by an unjust sex classification system of just male or female, by the way, again, where did that classification system come from? That's from God. He's the one who imposed it and it's not unjust, it's just reality, it's according to his design That still governs those who lack my freedoms, has been lifted for me, governs. To govern something is to restrict it. You put a governor on a golf cart, that limits how fast it can go. In the face of adversity, I have declared my right to define. There's in scripture, someone who said, I will be like the most high. The right to define my existence. I don't accept God's definition. I'm going to define it for myself and won that right. But most importantly, my court victory has opened the door for all those who like myself to also taste freedom from the gender binary. That sure sounds a lot like Genesis 3 and tasting the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But now listen to this. That was 2016. In 2019, James Shoup said that he has become a Christian and he's repudiated everything that he said. He now states that this was a fraud based on the pseudoscience of gender identity. And he says, I have and have always been male. God can restore what's broken. Last category some cultural implications. What's happening, for instance, in the legal realm on this? Well, President Biden has promised to sign the Equality Act, which will advance these causes further and more permanently. And based on that and the executive order that he gave that I mentioned earlier, the ACLU in Montana tweeted this. Montana could lose up to $484 million in federal education dollars if it passes HB 112. That loss of funding will harm a lot of students. What is HB 112? That's the Montana House bill that is known as the Save Women's Sports Act. And what it does is it says sports have to be classified as either men's sports, women's sports, or co ed based on biological sex, not gender identity. And the ACLU has said, you can't do that. The US House of Representatives recently adopted their procedural rules for this new term of Congress, which includes the rule that they must quote, honor all gender identities by changing pronouns and familial relationships in the house rules to be gender neutral. So no more Office of the Whistleblower Ombudsman. You Can't have man in there. Office of the Whistleblower Ombud. No more chairman or chairwoman, just chair. Because we're blending. We're not going to accept the distinct categories that God has given. This idea also has consequences for the family. If you redefine gender, eliminating biological sex distinctions, you can eliminate recognition of family ties. Your parental rights are no longer something given by God. They are instead conferred on you by the state, and the state takes the place of God. Rights are granted or removed by the state. And if you think I'm exaggerating, in 2018, a judge in Ohio revoked the parental rights of a Christian couple who would not allow their teenage daughter to receive hormone replacement therapy to transition to being a boy. The judge sided with the teen who wanted to change gender and removed her from her parents because they wanted to obey the Bible. Leviticus is incredibly relevant. Leviticus 12 teaches us that the womb is the world God has embedded in the very design of a woman something unique that declares his power and his glory and tells the story of what he's doing in the world. This God who constrains is the God who constrains sin. He's the God who constrains identity. Men are not women and women are not men. And as Christians, we are called to accept and honor God's boundaries and distinctions. But not only that, God honors women. These restrictions in Leviticus 12 are not dishonoring to women. God has quite literally embedded a reenactment of his glorious work of rescuing us from death and creating life. He's embedded that in the very identity of a woman. And so Leviticus 12 then also points us to Jesus, because Jesus, as we have seen, is the one who has the power over sin and death and its effects. Jesus is the one who has the power to heal us and to restore us to God. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider the words that you gave to your people Israel in Leviticus about unclean and clean, and, and for a woman what that means and what that, how that relates to her biological functions, I pray that you would help us to see the world the way you do. That we would see how you have honored women in that you have told the story of the world in their very being. I pray that we would take that same mindset of honoring women as distinct and different and glorious in the way that you have created them. May we not chafe against your design and fight against the the guidelines and the distinctions that you have given. But may we embrace your design and live in light of them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.